Well, let me say just a couple more things before we dig into the text. And the first is, I want you to hold me to account. I want that anywhere. I want that every week when we come to God's word together. But particularly on a passage that is so challenging, I need you to hold me to account. I need you to look at the text and come and tell me if you think that I've handled it wrongly. I've thought hard about it. I've been living with it for a number of weeks. I think I'm right. But some of this stuff is going to be difficult to hear. And so we need to make sure that we're, we're on, on the message. Is this what the text is teaching? Secondly, because of all the issues this passage is going to speak to, I can't possibly deal with them all in the sort of detail that we'd like to deal with. I've already flagged a few of the things that come up from this passage, and it's hard to teach on all of them. And there's the whole rest of the Bible to do that. So what I'm going to try and do is teach what the passage teaches as best I can and unpack some of the implications for us. But inevitably, it means some people here are going to have questions that are not going to be answered. And I want you to know that it's okay to have your questions. It's okay to have those questions. It's not wrong to want the passage to answer your questions. And so please do come to me afterwards if you've got questions that I sort of touch on but don't address properly. Please do come and see me again. I'd love to chat through some of those things with you. Because what's at stake here is very, very important. Every single one of our relationships is founded on a right or wrong understanding of this passage. And so it's critical to the healthy functioning of our families and our church as a whole that we get this passage right. Let me show you what I mean by asking a question. Is marriage the cure for singleness, for loneliness? Is that what this passage is teaching? Just take a look down with me, would you, at verse 18. So the sort of proper beginning of our passage, I asked Nush to read a little bit further back, but the proper beginning of our passage, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. There it is, God's own mouth speaking God's words. The very first not good thing in the Bible is loneliness, right? And by the end of the passage, we've had the first wedding. So... Surely the purpose of this passage is to teach us that marriage is God's solution to loneliness, right? And of course that that chimes nicely with the sort of thing that gets talked about in our culture today. But is it what the Bible is teaching? See, for many people in our culture, they're not worried about marriage per se, but they're concerned about sex, aren't they? And since the two are bound together in the Christian understanding... When the culture says you are only fully human when you are expressing yourself sexually, the church can often be heard to say you are only fully human when you are married with children. There's a danger that we sound like we're saying that. And that leads a lot of well-meaning Christians, let alone the people in the world out there, to say it's okay for a Christian to marry an unbeliever. Better to be fully human than to be faithful to God. It leads other well-meaning Christians, I think, to say, gay people should be allowed to marry too. Why should they miss out on being fully human? Why should they be condemned to a life of loneliness? Now, I hope we're all sharp-eyed enough to see the flaws in that line of thinking. Take Jesus as an example. He was a single man. He never married, though he attended weddings, and marriage is a good thing, and Jesus blesses them. Yet he was the only truly, fully human man who has ever lived. So marriage and sex cannot 
make you a human. They cannot be necessary for you to be fully human. Again, if we come with that line of thinking, we need to look closer at this text. Look again at verse 18. God says it's not good for the man to be alone. It doesn't say it's not good for the man to be lonely. If we've made that step in our heads, then we've, we've imposed something on the text. Many of us know what it's like to be lonely in a crowded room. Others of us know what it is to be away by ourselves and be in blessed isolation and not for the slightest moment think I'm lonely. Some of us who are parents might, might want to have a bit more of that. See, the two are only vaguely connected and, and God is addressing one and not the other here. Some of us think that ma- being married will solve our loneliness. And certainly if you look at Adam and Eve's marriage by verse 25, there's a certain blissful innocence to the whole thing, isn't there? The first marriage looks good, but give it ten more verses or so, and we'll see that it's not as rosy in the garden after all. The problem here is not loneliness, and marriage is not the solution to loneliness anyway. We have to come back to the text and ask what the word alone is about. What is so bad about Adam being alone anyway? And for that, we need to look at the wider context. Let's look at the the whole verse to begin with. What does God say? It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Helper. You don't send a helper when someone is lonely, do you? A comforter, certainly. A friend. But not a helper. But you do send a helper if the person is doing a job by themselves and needs a hand. If you're doing something and you need a helping hand, you send a helper. Now, Adam's job in our passage today seems to be naming the animals, verses 19 and 20. God brings the animals to Adam, and Adam expresses his authority over them by naming them, categorising them. You'll be a lion, you'll be a horse, you'll do this thing, you'll do that thing, giving them their job descriptions. And it seems that Adam is able to do all of that without a helper. So what exactly does he need a helper for? After all, his work in the garden appears to be done, but by the end of verse 20, notice, top of page 5, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So we need to go back further into the the passage we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. Verse 5, just take a look at verse 5 with me. Why is there a garden? Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. That is, the earth was basically uninhabitable. There was nothing to eat. And so, verse 8, God planted a garden. Eden was a prototype, if you like, of what the whole earth was supposed to be like in the end. Just as the plants and animals had the seed of replication in them, we saw that that three weeks ago, so the garden is the starting point for a worldwide Eden. That's the plan. And so why was Adam in the garden? Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That's what Adam's doing in our passage, isn't it? But there's a problem, you see. Can you see what the problem is? The garden is going to spread. It starts here and it's going to go global. But Adam cannot go global, can he? Because he's one man. 
consider God's command in at chapter 1, verse 28 to them, to male and female when he's created them. Okay? Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So what's the problem of Adam being alone in 2 verse 18? Adam is one man. How can he fill the earth and subdue it? He cannot be the only image of God if mankind is going to fill the earth and subdue it. The garden is going global and Adam is still local. And that's why God creates a a like opposite helper. Let me teach you a little bit of Hebrew. It's actually there in the footnote at the bottom of page four, if you have a look, the little C7 there. See, throughout Genesis 1 and 2, when you see the word man, it's the Hebrew word Adam. That's what Adam's name means. It means man. It's both his species and his proper name. It's his identity. He is Adam. And the reason Adam is called Adam is because the dry ground is called Adamah. Adam, you see, is not God the creator. He is made from the dust. That's expressed, of course, in in verse 17, isn't it? You saw last week. God puts a restriction on Adam, preventing him from taking the role of deciding what is good and evil. That prerogative belongs to God alone. Adam is of the dust. He's made from the dust, but he's also in the image of God. So he's, he gets no suitable helper from the other animals, does he? Because no other creature is made in the image of God. No other creature has the right to rule the way God does, the way Adam does. Adam is, at one and the same time, part of the creation and over it. And he is unique in that. And so God takes a rib from the side of Adam... And made a helper for him. Straight away, we might have a problem with the word helper. Because it sounds derogatory. Like slave, like servant. So it's worth noting, I think, in passing, that at various points in the Bible, God, all three persons of the Trinity at various points, are called helper. Helper for their people. That doesn't put God underneath the people of God, does it? That makes no sense at all. It's simply that God's people have a job to do and God comes alongside as helper to help them to fulfil their function. To be helper is simply to recognise different roles, not to recognise different values. But there's more going on here. The particular word for helper here means like opposite. A like opposite helper. And both parts are crucial here. Did you notice... Uh, The woman is taken from the rib of the man. She's made from the same stuff. Same value. Same dignity. Same image of God. But she's not just like Adam. She's opposite as well. She is woman and not man. And there's something beautiful in this, in the Hebrew. And I want to draw this out because uh, it's the first time I think I've been reading this passage for years and years and years. It's the first time I've made sense of how you get from verse 23 to verse 24. God creates woman, Adam's excited about it, and suddenly there's a marriage. And it seems like there's, there's a logical step missing, but it's there in the language of verse 23. Because in verse 23, that word man at the end of the verse changes. It's not Adam anymore. 
See, all through the, the passage up to this point, the species is Adam. It's man. It's from the dust. That's his primary relationship. But now, there's two of us. Now you've got genders. There's a new relationship and a new definition of the people. It reads, literally, she shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. Do you hear the, the, the resonance there? She shall be called wife, for she was taken out of husband. Be how I would translate that. Two people like each other and yet opposites. Same species, different genders. One who's been given the job of, of ruling the creation and the other to walk alongside and make sure he can do it. Together they are able to replicate. They have within them the capacity to spread little images of God all over the world. And so as one family to rule over God's creation. See, the marriage of Adam and Eve is not about solving loneliness. It is about creating the context for multiplying images of God to fill the earth and so subdue it. To to fulfil the job that God has given to them. But why a marriage? Why marriage? Why not just let them mate like the other animals? It's clear from verse 24 that Moses intends us to draw lessons for marriage from this passage, doesn't he? Plainly, Adam and Eve didn't leave their mothers and fathers, right? Because they didn't have them. So, plainly, Moses is is imposing an application for his first audience. He wants us to understand marriage from this passage, and he gives us an order, doesn't he? This is why a man leaves his father and mother, that's his, breaks away from the old family unit, and is united to his wife in marriage, and the two become one flesh. They they have sex, they're bound together spiritually. Why not replicate like rabbits, so to speak? Well, part of the answer in the rest of the Bible, of course, is that children should have two parents. That's the ideal family unit. Family matters. A lot of the Bible's teaching, certainly through the early chapters, the early books of the Bible, is about family. But I think the Genesis 2 answer here is this idea of one flesh. Did you notice? Adam starts alone. Then he becomes two, only to become one again. Do you see that? The intention was not to multiply humanity into warring factions. That comes later, that comes after Genesis 3, where families fight families, get to Babel, and it's all chaos, isn't it? God's plan was to have a fundamentally united society built around stable family units. One family, under Adam's headship, and established by the covenant of marriage. Let me pause here for a moment and just draw out some applications before we move on. First, we need to say marriage is a good thing. It's created by God for the good of human society, whether Christian or not Christian. Adam is absolutely right to get properly excited about his wife, break into hymns, and then make sure she marries him before she has a chance to look around for anybody else. Moreover, it's completely natural to desire to be married. So if you're single and you long to be married, then know that that's okay. It's a good thing to desire. It's part of our createdness to desire that relationship. 
Maybe you're single, maybe you're married, and you long to have children, and for some reason you cannot or have not yet. Well, know that that longing for children, similarly, is a God-given good thing. It was part of the imperative that God gave to the whole species at the beginning. Fill the earth and subdue it. But at the same time, don't make marriage an ultimate thing. Know that your humanity, your value in the sight of God is not determined by your sexual activity or your marital or parental status. Jesus and Paul, to name but two single blokes who did rather a lot for the world, put pay to that, don't they? They show us what a single person is capable of in the kingdom of God. It, it is necessary for, humans, for humanity's ongoing propagation that some people have children. Let me put it like that. But our dignity is not tied to being those people. Second point. Because marriage is between like opposite couples with the intention of reproducing, the idea of same-sex marriage is simply not possible in the Bible. I know that it's legal in this country. I know that uh, there are churches who are saying we should marry uh, same-sex couples. But biblically, marriage is between like opposite couples. And we'll see in a moment as we get to to, uh, Ephesians 5 precisely why they have to be like opposite couples. But just in this passage, it's clear that reproduction is a fundamental aim of marriage. And that's simply not possible naturally for same-sex couples. I think this becomes much clearer if we ask the question, what is marriage ultimately for? What is it about? And I don't think this is departing from our passage's purpose to jump forward in the Bible to see what the rest of the Bible says about this. Remember, our passage is teaching us that marriage is intended to produce little images of God to go forth and fill the earth and subdue it, to fulfil our function of ruling the earth in God's place under his rule. But in a fallen world, as we'll see next week, everything is back to front and upside down. At best, any one of us is a marred image of God from the very newborns among us right the way up. And sometimes we're so foully broken that very little of God's image is left. And so something much more than simply being born is necessary to make us images of God. Something has changed. The job of humanity is no longer simply have babies fill the earth and rule it because we just can't do it very well. And this is why we need to ask what difference the gospel makes to our understanding of of Genesis chapter 2. So do flick over please to page 1176 in your Bibles. Ephesians 5. And again, I'd love to spend lots of time on this. We're going to be looking at Ephesians in our small groups in the second half of the coming year. And so I won't unpack everything that's taught here. We'll save that for for home groups. But I want to just look at the last couple of verses of the passage. Verse 31, where Paul references this passage and tells us marriage is a profound mystery. Those of us who are married might well think, certainly my marriage feels like a profound mystery. But Paul says marriage in general is a profound mystery. And he tells us what marriage has always been about from the beginning. Verse 32, I'm talking about Christ and the church. 
Adam and Eve's marriage in Genesis 2 is about Christ and the church. It's a picture of the gospel. And this is where we see why marriages have to be between like opposites. In covenant, in marriage, for life. Because Christ's work for his church is eternal. It's covenantal and it lasts. Christ pursues his bride. She is filthy, but he makes her clean through the washing of the word, by the gospel, and by his death on the cross that pays for her sins. He wins her back, brings her to himself, loves her, takes care of her, leads her by the hand until that day when he marries her. And in return, the church submits to Christ. She allows him, in his love, to lead her. Paul explains human marriage is a picture of this. Two opposites bound together in marriage. One leads and loves and bears the cost for the bride. The other obeys and follows. Equal, but with different roles. Mirroring the gospel. A good marriage puts on display the gospel. Of course, there's much more to say about this in general. Marriage is still good. It's a gift in creation for the good of society as a whole. And let me say, in passing, that I think the last 50 years of innovations in family life and marriage now are doing untold damage to our society. And I think it will take a number of decades for that to be completely clear to everybody else. But I think it's obvious to many of us. But we need to come back to our passage, to Genesis 2. And to its original purpose. What has Adam and Eve's marriage intended to do in the beginning? It's a a picture of the gospel. And it's intended to, as a couple are united together in one family, fulfil God's mandate to fill the earth with images of him and bring about God's rule on the earth. We've said marriage is a good thing which points to the work of Christ in saving the church. But we need to then ask two further questions. We need to ask how this is related to God's rule on the earth. If the intention in the beginning was mankind covers the earth, rules it under God, under his word, for the good of the world, how is that different today? Where does Christ rule today? In the church. Do you know what Paul says? The church submits to Christ and follows him. He leads, he speaks, the church obeys. Where does Christ rule today? He rules in the church. How is God's rule extended through the whole earth then? As churches are multiplied. As missionaries go to the far ends of the earth. And as people are one for Christ and come into the church. So the rule of Christ is spread. As the gospel goes out and more and more people become Christians, are reconciled to God, come under the rule of Christ. So, the original creation mandate is fulfilled. As we grow more and more faithful to Christ as individuals, and as more and more parts of our lives come under his rule. So, the the original creation mandate is fulfilled. Or we could ask a second question. How do we create... Images of God today. If simply giving birth to them is not enough, is not sufficient, how is it that we create images of God today? Clearly having kids is necessary. 
You need to actually have people who can be images of God. But we're born sinners, born broken images at best. How is it that men and women, boys and girls, after the fall are restored to the image of God? Again, we come to Christ by being transformed into the image of God's Son. God's plan is is still to fill the earth with his image and to rule over the world. He will do that perfectly, ultimately, on that final day when Christ comes back and brings his people into his new place under his rule. But you see, therefore, the Great Commission is not go and make babies. It is go and make disciples. Do you begin to see that the commandment is the same? Go and fill the earth with images and rule over it for the good of the world under Christ. But because of the fall, the way the command is fulfilled has changed. Family units are still God's plan for for a healthy society. But the salvation of society comes through the church. It doesn't come by being born. It comes by being united to Christ People are converted through the church, become part of God's one global family. So it's not about blood ties anymore, although they can be very useful. And praise God, the children of Christians often grow up to be Christians. What a wonderful thing. But it's about spiritual ties to Jesus. If we are in him, then we are, by definition, God's children now. And therefore we are one another's true family. You are my brothers and sisters. And that is not just a picture. It is the truth. It is the absolute spiritual truth. The spirit of God runs deeper than the blood in our veins. And when all family ties are done on on that last day, the spiritual truth will remain. The church is not a physical baby factory, although it can certainly feel like that from time to time in our midst here at the moment. It is a spiritual baby factory that's why Paul calls Timothy his son though they are not biologically related it's why he was both a father and a mother to the church in Corinth that's not imagery that's reality that's who we are as the church now I realise I'm walking on a tightrope at this point see on the one hand I don't want to fall off the tightrope by minimising the value of family Biological family is still a good thing. It is still God's purpose for flourishing social cohesion. And and some generations of the church, particularly in the the first four centuries of the church, have got this all wrong and they've despised marriage and despised family. And the Roman Catholic Church still thinks that it's bad for their ministers to get married. Somehow being single is, is a higher spiritual attainment. Awkward for them that Peter was a married man, I think. Their idea of the first pope. But the family is a good thing. And a God-given thing, but it is not primary anymore. The church is your true family. More so than my parents, who are my biological kid, but are not Christians. You are my family. The person sitting next to you is as much your family as any children you may have or your parents. 
And it is a wonderful truth for every one of us. It's a wonderful truth for the person who has been cut off from their biological family for trusting in Jesus, as many from other religious backgrounds do. Because you get a new family, a hundred times the size of the one you left behind. It's great news for single people who might long for a family because the church is your family. Hear me, my kids are your kids, whether you like it or not. (laughs) It's great news for families because the burden of raising a family falls on all of us. I take it that our aim as parents is not that our children grow up to be rich or fulfil their career ambitions or uh, to be handsome or carry on the family name or whatever the thing is that secular people might want for their kids. I take it we want our children who are broken images of God to be restored to the perfect image of God, to be reconciled to Christ and grow up to love and serve him. I take it that's what we want, and that takes more than just parents. It takes the whole church, doesn't it? My kids aren't, are going to reach a point where they're not going to listen to me anymore. I need you guys to be teaching them the truth of the gospel. My job is to evangelise my children, to pray for them, and I can't do that by myself. Of course, I'm primarily responsible for that before God. And if I fail to do that, then he will hold me to account. But God has given me a much wider family to help me do that. You guys. It's great news for those who are struggling with loneliness, whether they're married or single. Because you should always have family available to talk to, to hang out with, to share life with. It's great news for those who are struggling with mental health issues. Because there should never be a time when you are going through your darkest moments and you do not have somebody to call on, even if it's three o'clock in the morning. And that's where the rubber hits the road for us, isn't it? As a church family. Because this is only good news for every one of us if we live it, rather than just say it. And if we don't live it, how is the gospel good news for the lonely, struggling, isolated and broken people in the world out there? If they look at us and see that we're just like them, struggling alone. See, if we think in terms of biological family, what's the danger? The danger is when when the darkness descends on our family, we shut the doors, we bolt them, we keep the world out there, we keep the church out there. We rob one another of the chance to see the grass isn't always greener. If you think being married is is a, a bunch of roses, come and hang out with my family for a couple of days. And likewise, those of us who have been married for a while and sometimes wish we could just have a bit of time off, we need to go and spend some time with our single friends and see it's not always a bed of roses there either. We rob each other of the chance to cry together, to walk together, to bear burdens together. We rob ourselves of love and prayers, of family, which is God's precious, precious gift to us. And we rob the world out there of a church which models what it preaches. Some of what I've said this morning is anathema to the world out there. If you went and said the things I've said this morning in your workplace or your playground, you'd be hauled up in front of the authorities, wouldn't you? For being prejudiced, for, for hate speech. 
The day may come when I go to prison for saying the same things I've said this morning and recording them and putting them on the internet. And the only way we're going to convince people that it's not hate speech is if we as a church are living these things out together. I need to be able to stand in the dock and point to my church family and say, look at that. These things that you think are full of hate produce love. Produce family as it's supposed to be. We have to believe that these things are God's plan for human flourishing. And by believing it, live it out. To recognise that the church around you right now is your family in the deepest possible way. And then be honest and open with each other. To share life in its ups and downs together. And if we get this right, brothers and sisters, listen to me. If the world sees what our doctrine produces, though it hates what we say, it'll love what we do. They will see the one new humanity under the rule of Christ, united to him, in love with him, loving each other, serving each other, at peace with each other, sharing life together, all its ups and downs. Let me say that has the profoundest apologetic value. So here is my offer to every one of you. Come and eat with my family. Come spend time with us. My door is open to you. If you are feeling lonely or you just need someone to hang out with or you just want to see what chaos looks like, come and share life with us. My door is open, genuinely. I mean, a bit of warning. Don't, you know, give us a call so I can make sure there's enough food for everybody. But, you know, come. If we're home, it's your home too. Because you're family. If you're lonely, come and stay with us. We can make space. If you're hungry, come and eat with us. Share our life, it's ups and downs together. Pray with us and for us. Come and get to know us. And here is my challenge. Will you open up your doors too? Every one of you. Will you welcome your family into the joys and heartaches to share everything? We all know that we long for that, don't we? It is profoundly attractive and it is something that our society desperately needs and it is something that we need too. So let's not just believe these things, let us do them and let's pray. Our Father, you've given the church to us as a gift. The church uh, obeys Christ and here are Christ's words. And so please enable us to obey them, with faltering steps perhaps, but help us to go out from this place wanting to obey, wanting to expose our lives to each other, embracing the way that we love each other, looking for ways to bless one another, being true family to one another, in all the heartaches and the joys of life. Father, your purpose is to multiply images of yourself all over the world. Make us more like Christ as a church family, that people would see the glory of the gospel in our life together. And help us to then welcome those people into our church. Cause many to see the glory of the gospel at work 
and come to saving faith that the number of images of Christ might multiply until they cover the face of the earth as the sand covers the the, the seashore. That you might get the glory and Christ might have a triumphant church for your namesake. Amen.